Hey, I wanted to read something. It's Palm Sunday this morning, and this is kind of an important day uh, as we lead up to Easter next week. I saw this this morning and thought this was really powerful. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, the crowds hoped he would overthrow Rome and set them free. But Jesus came to offer a different sort of freedom. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus as the king who brings a new kind of kingdom. Doesn't that resonate so much with what we're talking about so far in Corinthians? These Corinthians want to assert their rights. They want to make sure that their freedoms are the most important thing. And they want to tell Paul, you can't tell us what to do, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. So we're going to look at chapter 9 and chapter 10 today and kind of understand why Paul is responding to them the way that he is. Paul is having a meltdown in chapter 9. He's being very assertive. A little bit aggressive, but again, you have to understand where this is all coming from. If you were just to open up your Bible and start reading randomly in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you might walk away wondering, well, what am I supposed to do with this? I thought the Bible was just for me to have like a good tidbit to walk away with today. Chapter 9 would be kind of difficult to understand if you don't look at the overall context and recognize that there's something happening in this zero Corinthians uh, correspondence that's happening back and forth. If you're new with us and you're like, where do I find zero Corinthians in the Bible? You won't. This is the whole point. We've named this series Zero Corinthians on purpose because we want people to recognize that there is, there is some correspondence that we don't have in the Bible. So yeah, it's really First Corinthians, but that's what it's named at least because it's the first letter we have, but actually it's probably more like third or fifth or seventh Corinthians technically. And then second Corinthians is more like you know, 8th or ninth or whatever Corinthians. And so if you don't have the necessary context of chapters 1 through 8, we're going to miss what Paul is saying. So we're going to do our best to reconstruct it this morning. I'd like to open up 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 2. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, at least I am to you, because you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul begins by asking a series of rhetorical questions that all demand the answer, yes. Every single one of these questions. Am I not free? Well, yeah. Am I not an apostle? Yes. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes. Now, this is where he gets them. Are you not my work in the Lord? Are you not my seal of apostleship? The Corinthians want to throw off Paul's authority. They don't want to listen to him anymore. They don't want to be beholden to what he has to say in regards to following Jesus and making the gospel central to their lives. And, he, and they're saying, you're not really an apostle, and you're certainly not our apostle. There are other people that we would rather follow, which is where the divisions in the church were happening already. We follow Apollos, we follow, we follow Cephas, whoever they were uh, proclaiming under that banner. And Paul is saying, but wait a minute. I was the one who shared the gospel with you. Am I not the one who is an apostle because of your very spiritualness right now? He's throwing them back kind of on a loop here, using their words against them. They are saying Paul is not a spiritual person, and Paul is saying, wait a minute, aren't you spiritual people? Well, you've told me you are all throughout your letter. So how am I not your apostle then if you're spiritual people because I am the one who shared the gospel with you. Now, if the Corinthians can throw off Paul's authority in their life, then they can also look at his teachings and say, 
Well, we don't have to follow those either, particularly the teachings that the Corinthians don't want to have to comply with. They wanted to pick and choose what would be important or the, um, the, the best things that would fit their lifestyles. So I don't have to listen to the whole counsel of the gospel. I don't have to follow all of what Paul says. I'm just going to pick and choose the things that make me most comfortable. They don't want to see transformation into new attitudes and new behaviors that do come as a result of the gospel's ethical demands on each one of us. They want salvation, sure. They want heaven, yeah. They want forgiveness and mercy, of course. But in a way, they're making their own versions of the gospel and of what Christianity should or shouldn't be. And if I can take Paul's authority and throw it away, then I don't have to do what he says. I can make it what I want it to be. You wonder why we're preaching through 1 Corinthians? Doesn't that sound very relevant at any age and at any time? People picking and choosing which part of the Bible they want or don't want to listen to, applying what they don't and don't want to, ignoring the parts that they would prefer not to deal with in their own lives. Now, we know that this is what they are wanting to do. It's been revealed to us by chapters 8, 9, and 10. In your journals, you could write down chapters 8, 9, and 10, or maybe 8 and a dash to a 10, and say that these are kind of all linked together. All of these chapters are linked together by a through thought. Chapter 9 is an aside where Paul's going to kind of say something else, but it does relate to the points he's trying to make in chapter 8 and in chapter 10, and they're very similar things that he's trying to do here. But what he's trying to do in chapter 9 specifically is to defend his apostleship. What we found out from chapter 8 is that the Corinthians clearly have a lack of care or compassion for their brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't, we're just going to do whatever we want, and we don't care how anybody else is offended. We don't care one bit. Nobody should tell us what to do. What they cared about was their own status as spiritual elites. We know so much. We have all of these particular gifts that show, display how spiritual we are. So who cares what anybody else thinks? And Paul tells them, you can't just do whatever you want. That's not what freedom in Christ actually means. Going back to this Palm Sunday thing I was telling you about, Jesus came to bring a different kind of freedom than the one that the Corinthians were trying to push for. Paul says, no way, you cannot act like this. So he's going to go on and defend his apostleship because if he is still their apostle, then he still has authority to tell them what they need to be doing in their lives. Let's continue on verses 15 through 18. For my part, I have used none of these rights, nor have I written these things that they may be applied in my case. For it would be better for me to die than for anyone to deprive me of my boast. For if I preach the gospel, I have no boast, I have no reason to boast, because I am compelled to preach, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if unwillingly, I am entrusted with commission. What then is my reward? To preach the gospel and offer it, I want you guys to underline, free of charge in your journals. Free of charge and not make use of my rights in the gospel. So if this is Paul's response to what's happening in their correspondence, then what are the Corinthians saying to him? We have to kind of reconstruct that to understand where Paul is headed in his argument here. They are saying something probably like this. We are people of the Spirit, but you, Paul, 
you're not even an apostle, and we are even suspect as to whether or not you're a spiritual person at all. They claim that he's not an apostle because he didn't demand a lavish payday for his ministry. Huh? That's that's why they don't think he's an apostle? Because he's not demanding a lavish payday? I think some of their criticisms could have sounded like this. If you really were an apostle, Paul then you would not have to have a job outside of the church. You would be solely focused on your ministry. And in fact, we're embarrassed to even be aligned with you to see you working as a blue-collar tent maker. How can we follow the teachings of this poor, lowly guy when there are highly esteemed apostles who are well-paid for their ministries like Apollos or Peter or whoever else they may have named? I just... I, like I, that doesn't compute with my brain, but again, I think this is a very relevant text for us today. Paul clearly has the right to be taken care of by the congregation, but he has chosen not to take their money. Why? Because he is trying to show them that even if you, even though you might have the right to do something, it doesn't mean you have to assert all of your rights all the time. 1 Corinthians 9, 11 through 12. If we have sown spiritual things for you, it is, is it too much if we reap material benefits from you? Benefits from you? If others have this right to receive benefits from you, don't we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Instead, we endure everything so that we will not hinder the what? See, they want an apostle that they can be proud of. Because, again, it's all about them. Their faith is all about being a spiritual elite and showing everybody else how elite I actually am and how spiritual I am. So if I have an apostle who was the person who led me to Christ and wants me to live a certain way, if I have this person who is kind of lowly and not highly esteemed, he kind of looks a little bit funny, his hands are mangled from working tents all day, he's a blue-collar worker, and he doesn't accept pay, that does not fit into their narrative of spiritual elite, elitism. You guys understand what's happening so far? So, they are not proud of Paul. But Paul wants to remove any barrier to hearing the gospel. The Corinthians have concluded that Paul not accepting money from them is a negative, a mark against him. Now, we have something similar to this in our day. Culturally, we esteem celebrity status. Even within our Christian culture, we esteem celebrity pastors as a mark of spirituality. And I think particularly as you look around our area, you see large churches everywhere. And and I don't just mean like large, I mean like mega large. And I don't just mean mega large, I mean historically churches these sizes have never existed in all of Christendom. That's what's right around us, all where we live. They stand in stark contrast to the average church for all of history in, in Christendom and to this still average church in America where it's 75 people or less. What we experience in the Bible Belt is unknown in Christian history. We, again, maybe not us in this room particularly, but we as a Christian culture esteem certain celebrity names higher than others. We assume that the churches with the largest campuses and the most dynamic speaking 
are really the best of the best. We, like the Corinthians, assume that large and impressive and influential are the marks of true spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that large churches are essentially bad. I don't have any problem with a large church. I don't, I don't, I don't have a problem with a mega church. I don't have a problem with dynamic speaking. Those things are great. And I think that there are a lot of wonderful believers in large and mega type churches. I don't have any problem with that. I think we should have an ecosystem where both the large and the small coexist together to produce a healthy climate. Where we get it wrong is when we assume that if a church is small or the speaker isn't dynamic, that means they aren't worth my investment. Let me remind you, influence doesn't necessarily equal importance. And as you read the chapter, you see why Paul is so fired up. The Corinthians are sitting in judgment of his apostleship. Yeah, but there's something deeper that's happening. They are really questioning whether Paul is actually spiritual at all. They are saying that all of his input into their lives is meaningless. They are saying that his time with them was pointless because he isn't worth their time. They are directly challenging the gospel that he preaches and this Jesus-shaped ethic because he's not a celebrity pastor. Do you see how immature these believers are? This is why Paul has to continually say things over and over and over again. And listen, I'm not trying to force the text to say this. This is what the text says. And I promise you this is what it says because Paul has to pick it up all over again in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles. We're not just making up this elitism stuff. This is what Paul is saying back to them. Now I consider myself in no way inferior to those super apostles, even if I am untrained in what? I am certainly not untrained in knowledge indeed. We have in every way made that clear to you and everything. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? Why bring it up again, Paul? Because they're pushing this issue. At the end, in verse 11, Paul rounds it out like this, saying, Why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. They want... It's not just that they're questioning his apostleship. They're questioning his love for them. Didn't we just spend like eight, chap seven chapters saying, I'm your father in Christ. I shared the gospel with you. I love you. He said a couple, a couple weeks ago, should I come with a pow-pow or should I come with a conversation? That, I mean, Paul loves these people and wants them to follow him. But the Corinthians have absolutely trashed Paul. I mean, 100%. They see his servant attitude as a negative because if you're a person of influence and you're a celebrity, you don't serve anybody. You are the one that gets served. They see his work ethic as negative. Do you really believe your message is good enough to not accept money for it? They don't see him wearing a Rolex or a $1,000 suit. These are negatives. You don't really have God's blessing if you're not wearing a certain type or style of clothing. They hear a plain speaker who talks way too long. Did y'all know that Paul talked a long time? There's a story in Acts where somebody died because he preached too long. 
Now, I know that you think Pastor and I speak a lot. But did you die? No. No, none of y'all have died in here because we spoke too long. I mean, literally an act. Someone fell out of a window because they're falling asleep because he was preaching so long. And then he goes over and prays and revives them. He's like, get back up, we're still preaching. Right? You know what I'm saying? That, that's, that's the story. We haven't had to do this in here, so we don't preach too long. But that's what they hear. He talks too long. He's very plain spoken. And that's a negative because for the Corinthians, it needs to be 25 minutes or less or I'm feeling uncomfortable. They hear him try to limit their use of their rights in order to not hinder the gospel. And they say, you can't tell me what to do, Paul. All of this stacked together shows that they really question Paul, not just at at an academic level or a forensic level. They really question who he is as a person. And they're really cutting him deep. You understand now why chapter 9 is a little bit assertive, a little bit aggressive. All of this stacked together also shows that the Corinthians have turned church into a consumable product that needs to be rated one to five stars. It's all about them. It's all about their needs and what they want to see happen. They've not, they've not seen church as what it really is, which is a community to belong in. Church is not an Amazon product. It's a community into which I have the opportunity to invest, to pour my life, to be a part of these people. Now, can you see why the Holy Spirit has preserved these words for us? This is so relevant. God knows the bent of our hearts. He knows that we love people of influence. As Americans particularly, we want a pastor who will impress us rather than invest in us. How was the sermon today? Yeah, a little long. The youth pastor was up, so. Just kidding. But don't we do that? How was the worship today? A little loud. It's like none of the questions that we're asking were, hey, I saw you having a conversation with that person over there. Are they doing okay? Did you have a chance to pray with them? Uh, which one do you think Jesus judges the church by? Loud music or an investment in your community? We as Americans are fixated on attendance numbers, the amount of children's programs, celebrity worship performances, and eloquent speaking. This is how we judge the Christian church. But is this how Christ judges his church? See, I think what Christ would actually say are the measures of a successful church are a place where personal transformation is happening as a result of the gospel characterizing my life through relational discipleship. I think if you've got those elements, you've got a successful church. People are experiencing life transformation, true discipleship and growth in the gospel such that it characterizes who I am. Then who cares how big or small your church is? What does it matter? As long as people are growing to become more like Christ, that's it. And this is Paul's focus. This is why Paul is so angry with them, because they're missing it. He wants their focus to be on the gospel and how each believer lives as they follow the Holy Spirit. Because what the Spirit does is it will transform us to stop asserting our own rights and instead look for ways to serve and love others. First Corinthians chapter 9, 19. Although I am free, Paul says, from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to what? Win more people. 
in order to share the gospel. He, he continues on in verse 22. He says, to the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. This is important. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. He wants them to balance their freedom in Christ with this important and I think all, all too often forgotten spirit, uh, uh, fruit of the spirit, which is self-control. He wants them to balance their freedom in Christ with self-control. So as we transition into chapter 10, we have to be asking ourselves, what is the real issue that Paul wants to address? From chapter 8 to chapter 10, we're, we're kind of talking about idol meat. Meat that's been sacrificed to idols in the, the marketplace or at the temple. Is the real issue food, though, or is it something else like idolatry? So he begins chapter 10 by giving some examples about Moses and the children of Israel. And in fact, in verse 6, he expressly says that they were given to us for examples to not follow. The Israelites disobeyed God at Mount Sinai. You guys remember they made the golden calf. And they're like, it just popped into existence, like literally after Aaron just, you know, made it out of gold. In the desert wanderings, they rebel against him. Wherever they go, they're committing a particular sin. It's the sin of idolatry. It's pretty clear from the Old Testament that idolatry gets God really angry. If you were to look at the times when the earth splits open and eats a bunch of people, it's generally because of idolatry. Idolatry is when you take God's rightful place in your life as king and lord and you replace it with something else it's when you become the arbiter of all truth and you get to define good and evil on your own terms and now instead of following god i'm following something or someone else this is idolatry in fact the first commandment of the ten commandments you shall have no other gods before me God wants nothing else in his rightful place as king and lord of your life. And he's not just vain or mean or petty. He knows that if you tap into the life that he offers, you will have real life. If you can attach yourself to perfection, who is God, if you can attach yourself to God, who is love, then you will experience the fullest form of life. So it's not that he's petty or strange or whatever. It's that he wants you to experience real life. Now, Paul wants the Corinthians to flee idolatry, not to flirt with it. The Corinthians want to flirt with all kinds of stuff, we, we know. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. But Paul says, don't. I want you to flee idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 14 through 17. So then, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I am speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. Is he actually talking to sensible people? I love it. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We, are, we who are many are one body, since all of us share that one bread. See, this is a church body. It's not supposed to be divided and broken up. This is Christ's body in Corinth. How dare you participate in the meals of idolatry? This is Paul's point. Why? Because what you do represents who you are. You can't have it both ways. We as Americans want to have it both ways. They as the Corinthians want to have it both ways. Where what I do, that's not who I am. 
you don't really know me. I would never do that again. Paul says you can't have it both ways. You can't claim to be a Christ follower and then not act like one. And this is the point that he's making about the Israelites. They were God's chosen people. They went through the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses. Right? They ate the manna from heaven, kind of like the Lord's Supper that he's referring to here in chapter 11 in a moment. They participated in the things of God, yet they wanted to go back to Egypt all the time. They revealed their hearts that God was not in the first place. They revealed that they were truly still idolaters. And we are given their example so that we will not follow it. We do not want to be like them. We are to be like Christ because what you do represents who you are. He'll continue his line of thought in in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifice participate in the altar? What am I saying then? That food sacrifice to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with, you notice that word all over here, participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is Paul's whole point. Yeah, we all know from chapter 8 that food is nothing, that idols are nothing, but recognize that there's a demonic power behind those things that chains people and takes their eyes away from knowing Christ. So if you participate in those things, you are representing something to your community because what you do represents who you are. An idol is nothing. We all know that the best barbecue is at Aphrodite's temple, as Pastor told us. It's just food. Aphrodite isn't anything, but Paul is saying eating at the temple says something. Now, uh, they will see that, like, you're cool with idols. Both your Christian brothers and sisters from chapter 8 and other people in your community from chapter 10, they will see that you're cool with idols. And so why should they change their lives to follow Jesus? Paul wants them to use their discernment and self-control to limit their freedom in Christ. You are not to use all of your rights all the time. Not because eating is anything, not because an idol is anything, but because living for Christ means something. God wants us to look different than our culture. Our way of life should be odd, but compelling. I think for us, it's easier to coast through life on default mode, but that's not the call for any Christian. We are to actively engage our minds and our hearts to live for Christ every single day. Now, our culture provides any number of identities that go contrary to what Jesus showed us in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is sort of a Jesus-shaped life. This is how we're supposed to look. We're supposed to emulate and imitate Jesus. But our culture provides any identity that you would want to have. And actually, um, we should kind of think of it this way. Demonic powers present themselves as culturally appropriate alternatives to God. When we pursue these alternatives, though, we're actually committing idolatry. How does God feel about idolatry? That's a big no-no. And when we 
follow alternatives to what Jesus has given us and what has modeled for us and shown us how to live, we're actually colluding with demonic powers. This is what the Corinthians believed, though. And this is how they wanted to live. And this is why it leads us to another QRD moment. Remember, quotation, refutation device. Paul is going to quote them and then refute what they say here in chapter 10, verse 23 and 24. Everything is permissible, but not everything is. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Now, I need you to circle this verse in verse 24. This is incredibly important. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Doesn't that kind of sound like Jesus? Love God and love who? Others as yourself. You're kind of third in that equation on purpose. And Paul's picking that kind of Uh, reasoning up that kind of teaching up here in verse 24 and really this is the whole point of the chapter no one is to seek his own good but the good of the other person see the corinthians said that everything is permissible for a spiritual person nothing can impact me at all whatever i do is totally fine but paul says no because not everything that you will do can be beneficial corinthians said that everything is permissible but paul says Not everything builds up. Yeah, freedom is great, but only as long as it advances the gospel and a life lived for Christ. And this is why this is so important to understand what Paul's central idea of this entire text is. It's verse 24. Paul wants the Corinthians to stop thinking only about their personal freedoms and consider what freedom really means in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're free to do anything and everything. It means that you are free to make decisions that love Christ and others well. Essentially, freedom within boundaries. Some of you guys know, well, that's not freedom. Well, what does it mean that America is the most free nation in the world? Does it mean that you get to do just anything you want? So today, uh, because Jeremy and I want to drive down the highway 100 miles an hour while I drive and he's on the top of the car dancing like Teen Wolf style. That's fine? I mean, of course not. We'd get pulled over in a heartbeat and probably sent to a mental hospital. Because we'd be endangering other people's lives. We'd be endangering our own lives, right? There are boundaries around the way that we're supposed to live. You can't just do anything and everything that you possibly could do because that's not freedom. That's autonomy. Autonomy and freedom are different things. Freedom is the right to make decisions within healthy boundaries. Autonomy is the sin of Adam and Eve. I'm going to extend beyond the boundaries that God has placed in my life and no one and nothing can say anything to me at all. And that is the difference. The Corinthians didn't really want freedom. They didn't want any accountability. And that's an even more dangerous place to be, particularly for Christians. And this is why Paul's example from chapter 9, what we've already read in verse 19, is so important for us to understand. Although I am free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. You want to know the mark of a mature Christian? It's right there. I'm not, 
I'm free of everybody. I don't have any obligation, yet I will obligate myself to others. This is what maturity in Christ looks like. Because the more I obligate myself to others, the more that I make influence and impact for Christ. And this is the example that Paul wants the Corinthians to follow. In Christ, you're free to make decisions that keep with the new covenant ethic of love. Again, we go back to what, I mean, Jesus' new law that he gives us. Love God and love others as yourself. This is the law now. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament set of rules that were in place and now give us a newer and better law, which is to love God and love others. And this will be our guide for any and all situations. Like us, the Corinthians want a rule for every situation because then I can know how far or not how far I can approach the line of that law. But Paul doesn't see that every situation is exactly the same. And he'll say so in the next coming paragraph. I'll show you this. But instead of giving hard and fast rules, Paul upholds something far more important, which is the primacy of the gospel in each of our lives and the ethic of love, which can be applied to any and all situations. So let's see how Paul begins to nuance his point that he's just made earlier in the chapter where he says, don't you dare eat idle meat. He's going to nuance his point, though, because, he's, because he does believe in freedom in Christ. So let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 10, 25 through 30. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market. What? I thought he just said don't eat. It. What? Let's, let's continue on. Without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions for the sake of conscience. Well, I thought that he just, I don't understand. He's clarifying his, his position here. He's giving the Corinthians the ability to exercise self-control and discernment because not every situation is exactly alike. Do you understand? Not every situation is exactly alike. So yeah, he's giving you the principle, but he's also saying, yeah, but, but there's also going to be some situations where this doesn't apply. And if you go to an unbeliever's house and they offer you food and you say, oof, I can't be eating, eating that, you would offend them the other way. You would offend their hospitality. They might think that you're sitting in judgment of them. Do you think they'd be able to hear the gospel well? This is, this is why Paul wants to nuance his point. Because you have to use self-control and discernment in each and every situation of life. He continues on in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this is food from a sacrifice, do not eat it out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized because of something for which I give thanks? Now, this is a little confusing, but he's going to clarify once again, saying that your conscience would be clear if you are to eat the meat. But don't harm the other person's conscience, not because their conscience is able to rightly judge you because if they don't know Christ, right? Especially if you're eating out of thanksgiving and a sense of love for God but because they won't know any better, don't eat. Now, this is really important. If someone objects to you eating the idle meat, then eat it. It's just meat. You're free. I want you to circle something here. I want you to circle unbeliever. I believe it's in verse 27. And then I also want you to circle someone in verse 28. These are the same people here. If an unbeliever knows you're eating idle meat 
And that will convince them that being a Christian doesn't mean anything different than what they do. Don't eat it. It will harm their ability to hear the gospel because they will assume that you are just like them. I was in uh, college, um, and I kind of got into the party scene in, in my early years in college. And I spent several months hanging out with these guys that, are, that were part of the party scene. And, it, you know, whatever. And so then I recognized, well, we're just doing the same thing, and this is kind of boring, and I'm not really seeing any fruit or, like, personal, you know, growth in my own life. And so then I was like, maybe I should try that Christianity thing my parents raised me with. And so then I did it, and it was like, whoa, this is really cool. And I started meeting really awesome people, like, at my dorm room and that kind of stuff, and, and I, I made all these great relationships, and I started to really grow. And then one week I didn't have any accountability, and I went back and hung out with the party crew. And one of the guys came over, and he sat next to me, and he said, man, it's so good to have the old David back. Yeah. And I about broke down in tears in that moment. Because I recognized, he recognized, are we supposed to look just like our culture? Absolutely not. And if an unbeliever says you look just like them, or thinks that you look just like them, that's a problem. If someone laughs when you say, yeah, I'm going to church this Sunday. If someone goes, wait, you're a Christian? That's a problem. That's a big problem. Because our life is to be characterized by the gospel. This is not something that we add on to our already busy schedules. This is who we are supposed to be. We should not be just like them. Now, I think we missed this point, and we've missed this point in the past. I've heard this sermon mistaught all over the place in my life. This chapter is not about how Christians are to consider other Christians in their decision-making to not lead them towards idolatry. That already happened in chapter 8. And we've made such an emphasis on that that we've missed what Paul's really trying to say. This is all about the culture and how we deal with the lost world, chapter 10. We already dealt with how we hang out with other Christians in chapter 8. And Paul's point was clear there. Don't lead people to idolatry. Don't eat the idol meat in the temples because you will lead them back into idolatry. This passage is how believers interact with their lost culture in which they find themselves. Did you guys know a culture can't be saved? It can't be. Only people can. I'm just, just saying that out loud. So any culture you're going to find yourself in is going to be lost because it's humans living on default mode trying to get the kingdom of God without having the actual king. So you're going to find yourself, and Christians will find themselves, in a lost culture. And what we have to consider is how we live in that place. Just as much as we're supposed to care about our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should care about whether our actions tell our culture that the way they're living is okay and we do the same thing. We should care about how the culture perceives our witness. Again, not just like Paul says, not because they can rightly judge us. He said this all over the place. Not because they can rightly judge us, but because they don't know better. And they won't know better if you don't show them by your life because what you do represents who you are. And if you are just like them, then you are not like Christ. 
And listen, all of us at some level won't be exactly like Christ. We all still sin. So this isn't a call to be perfect, but they should see that even in your mess-ups and even in your sin, you lean into those hard moments and you do the right thing and you make things correct with people because what you do represents who we are. And if our lives are not shaped by the gospel, then we will have a legitimate uh, platform issue where we cannot share the gospel because people will always question our credibility. You want to know the times in history where Christianity is the most wrong? Where there's no accountability in the leadership structure? What do you think we're seeing, is particularly in Baptist culture, but in all kinds of evangelical culture? Scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal when will it end? You think that the world looks at, at that and goes, mm, I marvel at the forgiveness of Christ. Or do you think they look at that and go, bunch of hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. The other time in, in Christian history where people have gotten things wrong and where Christianity has got a really bad name, well, what about the Crusades? That's a question you'll often hear when debating somebody who doesn't know Christ. What about the Crusades? You know what happened in the Crusades? Christianity mingled with power structures. And Christianity became more about being a voting block and dominating a political block rather than being about Jesus Christ. Our allegiance is only to Jesus. Somebody amen that. Our allegiance is not to a particular political party. Our allegiance is to Christ. And the book of Revelation absolutely tells us that you're going to go through difficulty in life because you are aligned with the Lamb and you are not aligned with anybody. There will be political parties who might, you know, agree with you a little bit more. But you are to transcend those things because you are not to be of this world. You are rather to be of Jesus Christ because what you do represents who you are. And if people know you more as a Republican or a Democrat than a Christian, that is a problem. Y'all hear what I'm saying? We should not look just like them. Truly, Paul doesn't want to restrict these Christians, but he wants to nuance his position a little bit about this idle meat thing because he still wants them to exercise self-control in everything that they do, honoring themselves, sorry, not themselves, others above themselves the very behavior that he displayed in chapter 9. Now, he ends with kind of his overall principle in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Man, what, what a great principle we could just apply to our minds all this week. Whatever I'm doing, it should all be for God's glory. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks. Now, you know what? Now, again, we know this is not about believers because now he adds the believers as a part of this list. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God. So we know that chapter 10 is not about um, believers. That's chapter 8. We already have that. Chapter 10 is about something else. Just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many so that many may be saved. Whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Now, if we lived every moment like this, just imagine where our lives represent Christ in everything that we do. Yeah, we'll be a little bit odd, but we'll also be a lot compelling. With Christ as our identity, 
what we do as a result is live lives of transformation, constant transformation. And where we find ourselves stagnated, that's a time to go back to prayer. I think oftentimes we think, well, let's read my Bible, let's, you know, those kind of things, and we find stagnation there too. I think one of the biggest things that will um, inject some adrenaline into your spiritual life is to serve others and to pray. And if those aren't emphases in our lives, then we're missing out on the fullness that God would have for us, where we can partner with him each day to represent him to our community. Each one of us should be more mindful of our own selves. Because when we're mindful of ourselves, mindful of how we're living, mindful of being like Christ, that will create an awareness and a care for those who are outside of us. We will care for others. We will care what they think about, not because they can judge us, but because we want them to know Christ. Being more aware of others will make us more intentional people because we do care. Our motivation is no longer our stomach or our sex drive or our desires or our need to assert our own rights. Our motivation is what verse 24 said to us, the good of others for the sake of the gospel. We must be like Christ in order to represent him wherever we go. So how's your prayer life? I'll use an I statement. Not as good as it could be. Not as dedicated as it could be. And I'm working on it. Because when I seek the Lord, when I go after him with honesty and realness and, and with passion and grit, that's where I'll begin to represent him wherever I go. Because I want to be constantly shaped by the gospel and this new covenant ethic of love. So then love becomes my daily application. Love becomes your daily application. If it doesn't fit into what love would dictate, then don't do it. If it fits into what love would dictate, then do it. Love actually has to become a lifestyle. Not a force to maneuver, but a lifestyle. And when it gets to that spot, there's no way we're going to assert rights. There's no way we're going to assert freedoms. Because it's not about us anymore. It's about glorifying God in whatever I do. And as we live like this, yeah, we're going to be a little strange. But our lives will be compelling. And each one of our gospel-shaped lives is to actually become a gospel-shaped billboard for our culture to see. And that billboard should advertise humility and honor for others. Why are we still talking about Martin Luther King Jr.? Why are we still talking about Mother Teresa and Gandhi and these great, wonderful people? Because they were selfless and lived a compelling life. Now, Gandhi wasn't a Christian, but he lived out a lot of Christian principles, like peace, love for others. And so we're still talking about these figures because they were genuine. They really lived the kind of life that people wish they could. And we all wish that we could be more like a Martin Luther King Jr. or more like a Mother Teresa who invests our lives in others. And that's what our gospel-shaped lives should be, which are billboards that say we do love others, we do honor others. That kind of life will influence people for Jesus. And this is Paul's whole point. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of Christ. Whatever you do, Seek to honor and to love others. Stop asserting your freedoms.
I think we should spend some time in prayer, asking God for our own particular setting, our own particular context, how we can begin to apply love more carefully, with more self-control, and with more discernment than maybe we thought we needed to in the past. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is alive and relevant to right now. Thank you that you continually, continually work in the lives of those who proclaim to love you. Now help us to be those people. Help us this week to be people who realize and recognize that what we do represents who we are and we just want to represent you. I pray that that's our heart's cry, that that's our heart's desire this week. I pray that we would not assert our rights, but rather we would lay down our own rights for the good of others because we want to influence people for Christ. I pray that we would be gospel-shaped billboards who are aligned with you and what we say and what we do. We don't want to be just like our culture. I pray that we would resist that with all that we have, with all of our Holy Spirit-given unction and moxie. I pray that we would that we would be assertive about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives rather than about our rights. And I pray that we would be people that other people can see and know that they love Jesus. Spirit, would you tell us in each of our hearts what I individually need to be doing in order to represent you more? Help me to begin to think through, maybe give me some thoughts about what I should be doing next in my workplace and at home and with my kids and wherever I go. Help me to see some areas where I need to apply the new covenant ethic of love more completely and more fully. Help me to recognize and discern some things and, and difficult situations that I have to navigate because ultimately I want to represent you and I want to be about you, Jesus. Father, give us the strength this week 